Welcome to Tamarindo Podcast. Hosted by me, Brenda Gonzalez, a political nerd and nonprofit capacity builder. And me, Ana Sheila Victorino, a queer well-being enthusiast and mindset coach. We are a Latinx empowerment podcast discussing politics, culture, and how to keep your calma with well-being practices and self-love. Welcome to the show. What's up, Tamarindo Amiguis? ¿Cómo están? Hello, everyone. Good to be back in your ears. Ana Sheila, before I ask you, ¿qué pasa contigo? I just want to know, how is your dog after all that marijuana? Oh, he's chilling. He's fully recovered. Um, I want to say he's maybe a little bit more chill, but it's probably just in my head. But no, he's back to being his crazy, always hungry, always wild self. <laughs> hilarious. Hilarious. And what else? ¿Qué más pasa contigo? ¿Qué más pasa conmigo? Um, so I'm trying new things coming up that I'm excited about. So one thing I'm trying that's new is we think we may have ADD or maybe everyone has ADD, right? But I struggle a little bit with focus and I've never tried any of these like brain foods, you know, like it's like, they're like, uh, como pills, but they have, they're like natural supposedly. And they have all types of different things that are supposed to help you focus more. So I'm actually trying, I, I think they're called nootropics. So we shall see how they go and see how my focus feels after that. Excellent. Yes. Please, please report back. I know I will. I will. I've never taken anything like never taken like, you know, Adderall or any of those kinds of drugs. So we'll see how this feels. I've, I'm always a little bit como wary of, of trying, ingesting new things. So I'll, I'll, I'll keep you updated. And then the other thing I'm excited about, I have a good friend from college who also lives here, which is really cool to have someone like that, that I know that I've known for a long time. He is also gay and we we're going to have like queer salsa lessons. So we're going to have an instructor who is also queer, who's going to give like a group of like six to eight of us, uh, weekly lessons. And this has been one of my intentions for the longest time, but I haven't been able to make it like an actual como like weekly or like consistent thing. So I'm really excited. We're going to try six weeks, two times a week. And, and it's going to be cute just because we have a queer instructor. All of us are queer. So we have different ways that we probably, some of us may want to lead. Some of us may want to follow. So I'm really excited about that. That is so cool. Mucha suerte with all the dancing. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I'm ex maybe I'll, I'll become a, I'll get to show off my dancing at some point in a video or something. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Um, ¿Qué pasa contigo, Brenda? Well, I am really trying to get into a health kick here on the in Los Angeles. We're signed up for a bike race in Joshua Tree. We just did a bike ride that was, I think it was... I don't know. It took four hours. So it was a long time, but there's a, a lunch break in between. But I'm really trying to get on the bike a little bit more, get more mileage in, trying to hike Mount Whitney again. For This will be the third time we're trying. We've It's been canceled a couple of times because of fire. So um, continuing to lead my workout class, I'm really just, I want to be like super buff by the end of this year. Yes. I really want to step into into the my 40s, which are, I'm still, I'm still a little bit of ways, but when I get there, I want to look better than Jennifer Lopez. That's kind of the plan. Ooh, that's what I'm working on. I love that. Um, that's I actually wanted to share with you that I've been going biking on Sundays here in Mexico City. They closed down a few streets and it's like super free for everybody just to ride their bikes. And it's the most amazing thing. So I've been thinking, I love it. I've been thinking that I might want to get a bike. So um, we'll get to talk about that. I'll have to hit you up about that because I know nothing about like, you know, going well, bike riding. you have to talk to, to, to producer Jeff. I don't know anything. Okay. I'm, I'm just incredibly lucky <laughs> You go along for the ride. Jeff. <laughs> Yeah, I have. Yeah, this is the thing. Like, I'm spoiled. Everybody knows I'm spoiled by my parents. I'm spoiled by my husband. I, um, <laughs> if I have a flat tire, I don't have to deal with it because I got, I got someone. <laughs> I got someone. <laughs> it makes things a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to talk to him because I, I've loved it so much on Sunday. So I've been thinking about maybe making that a new hobby out here, but I, I feel like you need to know, do your research before you get into into the biking world. Anywho. <laughs> yes. All right. So today we're going to have such a fun conversation with our guests coming up soon. To kind of preview that, I'd love to know, Ana Sheila, what is your go-to comfort food? What, what gives you an instant hug to your belly? So it's so simple, but it's frijoles de la olla. <laughs> instant hug. It's frijoles de la olla, con, um, you know, like in a, it's like in the soup format, it's, um, calientitos, like recién hechos with like queso ranchero, only queso ranchero, like no mozzarella, none of that shit, but queso ranchero, if you're familiar, it's like queso fresco, um, and con cebollita, chile and a tortilla. That's it. 
Beautiful. And why is that? Why do you think that's your comfort food? I mean, I, my mom, uh, we always had beans. We always had frijoles de la olla, always recién hechos, homemade. And it was one of those things. It's just, yeah, it felt like a, a little hug. So it's something I grew up with and it still brings me a lot of comfort. Love it. ¿Qué tal tú? Well, for me, it's a quesadilla. I love a quesadilla. I think it was like a snack that I would have constantly when I came home from school. I had a lot of different snacks. Let me tell you, I had some funky snacks. One of the weirdest ones is I would get a big potato, a potato, and I would cut it and then I would stick it in the microwave. And once it was like really warm, I put a big stick of margarine on it and then I put some tahini on top. Oh, that was delicious. <laughs> but on top of that, I'm also quesadillas. And that was, you know, that's my instant constant. Like I love quesadillas, but only with cheese. For some reason, I'm not a fan of meat in my quesadillas. I only want the cheese and they're just so delicious. So to me, that is like a really warm hug to my belly. And I wanted to talk about food because, I mean, food says so much and it's really fascinating just to see where Mexican food arises in the United States in, in so many different, in every single corner of this country, there is amazing Mexican food, it seems like. But there, this has been an evolution. This has been a journey. And there is a English professor who's pre probably the coolest English professor on the planet, Dr. Steven Alvarez. He created a course and a platform called Taco Literacy, where he explores Mexican foodways. And these foodways can teach us a lot about American history, about migration. And he's got some really excellent points. You know, a lot of folks love Mexican food, but for some reason, many of them fall short from loving the people. So he, he explores that and critiques that with his students. And we're going to learn a little bit more about taco literacy and more about Dr. Alvarez. He's an author. He's a poet. He's a musician. And it was a delight to speak to him. So let's learn a little bit more about his journey from small town, Arizona, small town in Arizona to going viral on Vice, all about his work with taco literacy. Provecho. Well, first, I want to welcome you to Tamarindo. Thanks for joining us today. No, thank you for having me. Great. Happy to be here. Now, I would love for folks to know the story of how did you become Dr. Steven Alvarez, taco literacy professor, which is how I saw Bon Appetit <laughs> introduce you recently. So I'd love to know how did you become this taco literacy professor? Well, so it's a funny story. I mean, I didn't, it's so weird because I didn't really start off wanting to study tacos and Mexican food. It just kind of happened. But when I go back to it, um, I guess I'll start from the beginning. I, I grew up in a little place called Safford, S-A-F-F-O-R-D. I always got to spell it because it's so small. No one ever heard of it before. Safford, Arizona. It's in <laughs> Southeast Arizona. So close to the, um, folks call it copper country, but it's uh, sort of in the corner of Southeast Arizona, close to New Mexico and, and well, Sonora, Mexico. Um, the big, the biggest close, or closest big city was Tucson. So I grew up in a town of less than 10,000 people. And I guess the very beginning, way back when, my family comes from Mexico. My mom comes from a place called uh, Caranea in Sonora. And my father's family comes from Sinaloa, but they came about 1916. But my father grew up in a little town called uh, Bisbee. And Caranea and Bisbee are both border towns on each side of the border. And they both have gigantic copper pits in the middle. Um, they're both copper, uh, well, places where copper is mined, but also owned by U.S. multinationals. And that's that's all complicated altogether. But Anyway, I, I grew up uh, pretty humble. First one in my family to go to college. My dad was a copper miner and he retired and was a custodian. And my mom growing up, she used to clean houses and offices. She was a bus driver. I mean, like a Mexican mom, she had like 20 different jobs <laughs> growing up. And she used right. to bring me to work all the time <laughs> with her too. So I always used to see, you know, what this meant for for me growing up. Um, I, I, you know, where I grew up was, um, well, there was half the town was, was white, but also half the town. The same folks were Mormon. So I grew up with a lot of Mormon folks, and that, that taught me a lot about, well, ways to see whiteness, but also to see myself in relation to what, to what I thought the way people perceived me. And so anyway, you know, I, I went to, I did really well in school, so I got to go to University of Arizona as a scholarship boy, and it was there that my mind started opening up, and I wanted to study especially poetry and writing and English majors. So that was kind of a hard sell from my parents because I was the first one in my family to go to college. They're like, what? You want to study English? You already speak English. What, what, what are you doing? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but also at college is where I really started studying Spanish more too, formally. And then um, started reading about Mexican-American authors and Latinx authors and, and poets and be, being excited about writing my own poetry. So did really well there. And then I re decided, I realized I could start traveling and 
Uh, first time I went on an airplane, I was 22 years old and I went to England. I took out a loan from the school so I could go to go see where Shakespeare was from and stuff. Cool. <laughs> but anyway, I didn't. Um, that is so rad. Yeah, it was pretty fun. I was I was taking the most and knowing that um, this was an opportunity that my parents didn't have. And I was taking every second that I could to really absorb myself, find out more about myself, but also just discover what these passions were. Because in my little town, uh, just opportunities, you see, like, oh, I just felt like you were surrounded by the valley and the mountains. And it really does feel like that. So anyway, I, uh, then I realized I'd go, get, you know, go to grad school study more poetry at this time i wanted to study some these guys like ezra pound and james joyce and samuel beckett these high modernist dead white dudes but <laughs> anyway i realized i could go to uh, as far away from my hometown as i wanted I, so i decided i'll go to new york city and uh, i was a phd program here at the cuny grad center uh when i was at the cuny grad center though a few years before i did this program called americorps i was doing national service i lived in alaska throughout the south and stuff doing direct service with communities but when i moved to new york i was in this grad program and I realized I want to quit. Uh, some of the, the scholarship and academia and some of who I realized were going to be my future colleagues, they just didn't know where I came from. They had never come from a small town. A lot of these folks, their, their parents were professionals. A lot of them were like the families whose houses I would help my mom clean when I was young. Uh, so it just felt like, what's the point? What's the point of me writing a dissertation that my parents wouldn't be able to read was the way I kept imagining this question in my mind. So anyway, I was on the subway one morning because I had a teach an early morning class and I ran into this guy. He saw I was reading a book and he asked me if I was Mexican. I was like, oh man, I hope this guy is, hope this guy is not going to like beat me up or ask me for some money or something. I don't know what's going on over here. He's in New York City. No one talks to the train early in the morning. <laughs> anyway, um, he had this little, after, he had a little, uh, little business card that he printed out on his computer or maybe on his printer at home. And it was this after school program. And it was this program that helped Mexican families uh, especially kids with their homework, English language homework. So I started going there. And then I realized this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to learn more about Mexicanos in Nueva York because it's, it's different than Mexicanos in, in Arizona or California or the Southwest. Mexicanos in New York are here, but, you know, here but a generation or so. And so that's when I realized I could actually do the, a dissertation that would focus on what I was learning in this community, focusing specifically on literacy. Because even though I was very much into some of these poets, I'll give a Ezra Pound as an example. He wrote this really, I mean, well, whatever, he's an example as a fascist poet, but he's also somebody that did some really interesting things with language and mixing languages and periods and history and stuff, but particularly mixing different kinds of languages with English for poetic effect, which I was always fascinated with. But meanwhile, these kids who were doing their homework were doing that too. And they weren't being pretentious and poetic. They were just mixing language because they had to out of necessity. And I was thinking, this is beautiful. And the way they were using English to defend their parents, sometimes to talk back to their parents too. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there was a lot of interesting right. things that I was <laughs> noticing that were happening in terms of the languages because I had been studying language for so long. So, anyway, long story short, it's still getting longer. Still got to get a tacos, but <laughs> that became my dissertation. <laughs> and it's about Mexicans uh, and bilingual literacy for helping kids with homework and getting mentorship to help kids with homework, but also helping parents learn about doing homework too. So that's a book I wrote called Brokering Tareas. Y'all can check it out. Uh, and, and that also um, led me to Kentucky then, where I was a professor at uh, University of Kentucky in a department called Writing, Rhetoric, and Digital Studies. And when I was in Kentucky, I found encountered uh, an after-school program, bilingual after-school program at a, at a bilingual public library. So it was a bilingual public library. And so that's, that was already tremendous, I thought. In Kentucky, right? Yeah. Where, where, where people aren't thinking that yeah. that's where you I would mean, find one. You, you can't find these in New York. Uh, I don't even think we can find them in places like Texas and Arizona. I, when I say bilingual, I don't mean like that little section in the corner for Spanish and everything is English. I mean, the majority of the texts are in Spanish and everything is shelved together. It's really symbolic of what bilingualism means in this library because it's not so much the idea that people don't want to learn English. Uh, racists always throw that idea for their xenophobia. People want to learn English more than anything, but it doesn't mean you have to give up Spanish or whatever your home language right. is, because there's dignity in that too. Well, anyway, so at that point, you know, I was teaching in Kentucky and I was teaching classes about immigration, but majority of the students at University of Kentucky are white at that time, about 90%. So I was teaching a class called Mexington, because in Lexington, there's the barrio called Mexington. So you know who lives there. <laughs> it's closer to horse tracks and so on. <laughs> and so anyway, I you know, that was a hard sell because this was even before Trump and the immigration issue has always been political, but it was getting 
to the level the temperature was rising towards 2016. This is around 2012 or so. And so anyway, uh, I did take students on a field trip to the barrio. And I took them to a place where uh, there was a taqueria, but they also make their own tortillas there too. And they use corn from Weisenberger Mills, which is very famous for making grits. So the same corn that's used to make these very famous grits in Kentucky is also made to make these delicious Kentucky tortillas. I'm talking like delicious Kentucky I love tortillas. That. Yeah, that is so, so, good. so symbolic, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, <laughs> so you know, there's like Tex-Mex, but this is Kentucky Mex, which is, that's a thing. There's New York Mex too. We'll talk more about that probably later. But and anyway, so the students who I was sometimes having a hard sell with, all of a sudden they saw these tacos and they're like, wait, hold on. What is this? This is not chicken or beef because they'd only ever been to like Qdoba, <laughs> you know, and, and they saw these tortillas and they had all these questions like, how do, how do they make this? What else is on this menu? Because the menu was in Spanish. So I was translating things like sesos, um, you know, carnitas, uh, tripas, <laughs> all this stuff. They're like, whoa, <laughs> you know? And so anyway, I was having a hard time trying to do immigration straight up, you know, through politics and language. But then I realized, oh no, they love Mexican food. And then I started thinking, wait a minute, all the stuff about immigration, language, politics, people, history, it's all right here in this tortilla. And not only that, but it's like, they love our food. <laughs> and I was like, this is the way we get to their hearts. They, Cause you can't love the food if you don't love us. So anyway, I proposed this to my colleagues in Kentucky and they're like, yeah, go ahead. No, no, no hesitation. Let's do a class about tacos and Mexican food and you should do this. And so that just sort of sparked things rolling. Um, went on, Vice did a story about uh, on Munchies, which is a, uh, the food outlet for Vice and uh, went viral on, I think it was on at that time, Facebook. It was a, lot, a headline that was something like, you can study tacos at the University of Kentucky. So of course that's like instant clickbait. <laughs> and then well after that of course, yeah, yeah sign me up. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. And people are like, Kentucky, are you kidding me? They might expect that like in Texas or California, but hold on, Kentucky? Come on now. So anyway, um, yeah, it went viral. And then I just sort of, all these news outlets started interviewing me about this taco professor stuff. And I'm like, you know, I've already wrote two books, but okay, <laughs> let me tell you about this this class I started teaching. And so anyway, I moved to New York and I brought it with me, and ever since then it's been this this turn in my career where I really start doing the same things I was trying to do before, uh, approach Mexican immigrants and Mexican-American folks and their histories and their families with, with a lens for dignity, understanding language, uh, most importantly, to just do a kind of research that's humanizing. So the, the turn towards Mexican food, though, I think was always there because even when I was researching with families, um, when I was doing the after-school programs, uh, moms were always specifically moms, but even dads sometimes too were bringing me food. Uh, but people were bringing me food: tortillas, tamales, rice, arroz con leche. I mean everything. And I should have realized then that that food was also symbolic of the relationship and confianza we had established over the years. That was like, you know, they, the parents saw me giving my time to be there to help their kids with their homework, coming in three days a week, and this was then for you know for them to say, "I made this with my hands for you." And so if you can see me too, that I see that you see us, you know, because oftentimes we're the people that folks don't want to see or choose to ignore us. But here we are making community. And so that, that was symbolic even then, but also even what I think about now. And that's the way I think about turning to foodways and literacies is what really what the, the research I do now is so important because I feel like, uh, I don't know, for people who were systematically dehumanized at every single level historically, uh, to see us through our food is the first way to, I think, humanize us, but also understanding that the food is part of the expression of our genius and our dignity and not just something that can be decontextualized or taken away from us. And it really enforces that point I was trying to say that, or I think I was mentioning before, uh, if you, you can't love the food if you don't love us. It's just, it doesn't work. And if you do love us, the food tastes so much more better. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I love that. That's so powerful. And, and thank you for con contextualizing that experience, because I think it, it really matters where you grew up and the way you kind of you came to dream up of this wonderful course. We want to invite you to our next workshop called Stepping Into Your Voice and Power, happening online on March 1st at 6 p.m. Pacific time. This is a workshop for folks who are ready to take up more space and step into the power of their voice, story, and message. During this one-hour workshop, we'll create a safe space where you will be able to uncover what's blocking you from confidently using your voice, challenge those blocks, 
learn how to access your voice and message, and practice stepping into your power. Yes, yes. So by the end of this interactive workshop, you'll leave with a better understanding of yourself, tools to challenge what's holding you back, and tangible public speaking tips to strengthen your voice and message. Once again, this is happening March 1st at 6 p.m. Pacific time. This is online and registration is pay what you can. You'll get to work with your favorite mindset coach, which is Anna Shayla, and with me, a public speaker who teaches this stuff to college students and beyond. Workshops like these can run hundreds of dollars, but we want to make this accessible to all our listeners. So you can register on our website at tamarindopodcast.com and we'll also share the link in our show notes. See you March 1st at 6 p.m. with the price being pay what you can. I'd love to hear, like, if we were all students in your class and it's the first day of taco literacy, how do you preview the course? Like, what can folks expect in this class? Yeah, actually, you know, that was just last uh, last Friday was our first day. Now, today we're teaching it later on this afternoon. So we're teaching it again this semester. Uh, what we did last last week, well, first I had to go over the syllabus and all that formal stuff and point out all the important dates. Uh, but then also uh, read the course description where a lot of the what I was pointing out in the course description is, is more or less what I just pointed out about the, the idea of the class and turning the food ways in this way. But then I also like to begin things with um, putting that further in context. So first thing is doing a few definitions. So defining the word food ways for one and using uh, different uh, well different disciplines to find a way food studies can happen. So we first we have to think about food critically is not just something we eat but also really something we can think about and getting to know. Uh, related to that though, I also ask students to think about their comfort foods, what their comfort foods are. And this is kind of interesting because you know some students will say like fast food. Uh, I had one student the other day where I was asking her about um, her comfort food. I think she did say Taco Bell, but then I asked if there was anything else growing up uh, that was a comfort food here. And she mentioned it was this lentil soup. And I asked, what is it? What is that lentil soup you're talking about? She actually had it right there in her hand next to the computer. I was like this, this is also my comfort ah. food. My mom makes this all the time. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, okay, well, let's talk more about that. And so unpacking that and where that soup comes from and also the words for it that are also um, cross-cultural because words and food and languages travel together. That was one instance where we can see like turning to food ways and also aspects of care, language and people in our lives. And also what that means for us to feel quote unquote at home and even complicate that. Well, furthermore, uh, I show a couple of videos, too, from the Southern Foodways Alliance. And all the listeners, I hope you all check them out, the SFA, uh, southernfoodways.org. Uh, they have a lot of um, really cool short documentaries that are about you know, eight to ten minutes long that focus on different aspects of putting the South in context through its food, its cultures. So we watched uh, one short video about fry bread and the Choctaw folks in Mississippi, and then another short video uh, see, I think I had another one I was dealing with black folks making tamales. That's also in the Mississippi Delta Valley. And there's a few other videos as well. In fact, there's also a video there about Mexican, Kentucky, which I hope you all get a chance to check out too. So we, we watched a couple of videos just to get us to have a few things to talk about, but also the videos are focusing on people and their stories. So centering first on people, but also food being a part of that expression of people. But primarily, uh, I make the point that this class will always be about people and how we learn about stories through the food, but beginning and focusing always on people. Love that. I love that. I'm, I sign me up. I wish I wish I was in New York so I could take this course. Now, <laughs> you are in New York. You are in, in Puebla, York. And yeah. I'd love for folks to get a better understanding because, I mean, look, I live in L.A. We One of the best things about living in L.A. versus even living in Mexico is that I can have access to delicious food from every single state of Mexico yeah. really, really close because I, I, I live here and I have these, I guess I could, you could, in fact, somebody even called me a taco snob, you know, like literally somebody called me a taco snob and that is, I wear that pri proudly in my Twitter bio. But I think part of that is this misconception that you can't get, get great Mexican food in New York. Mm -hmm. So let's dispel that. Like, tell us what are the misconceptions that folks have about Mexicans in New York? Sure. I mean, well, Oh, it's so hard to 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 compare New York with with Cal well, especially LA. 
in this regard with about Mexican people because the history is just very different and longer in, in Los Angeles, of course. And of course, Los Angeles even has a Spanish name. I mean, come on now. <laughs> that was Mexico. Here, it's a little <laughs> bit different, you know, because like I said before, or I mentioned briefly, Mexican folks have only been here for maybe about 40 years, really. You know, around the mid 80s is when we really started seeing the numbers increase. But around the turn of the century is when the numbers, of course, were really peaking. And most of the folks are coming from Puebla, uh, they're coming from Guerrero, they're coming from Oaxaca. They're actually coming from the region called the Mixteca. Uh, and a lot of folks are also coming with indigenous roots as well, coming from small towns and ranchos. That whole history of migration is kind of complicated, but um, this was also post-1994 you know, NAFTA and the crisis of the Mexican peso. So there was mass migration of Mexican folks uh, going to different parts of the United States beyond California and Texas. So that's why Mexican folks were also in Kentucky. It was that same wave of migration. In Atlanta, for example, all throughout the Midwest, beyond Chicago, where there is already a sizable population. So these were, uh, quote unquote, non-traditional receiving areas for Mexican folks. And so New York, uh, the numbers of here were especially large for poblanos. That's why people started calling this place Puebla, York. And unlike, I think, what you said before, I mean, every state having representation, let's say, within a few blocks in L.A. or even just in the perimeter of anywhere in L.A. is something we haven't quite experienced just yet. But it's not necessarily all Poblano. I think we call it Puebla, York, but there are so many more folks coming from different areas of Mexico. And it's, it's actually making, for us, I think we're sort of going through our, our taco renaissance, actually. <laughs> I'm glad, you know, to really put it in perspective, I mean, a lot of times folks come from different parts of the country to New York expecting what's available, let's say, or, or what, their, what their palate suggests is, is, is I don't know acceptable for Mexican food, but they sort of transpose that onto New York without really appreciating what's already here as it's distinct on its own thing, developing on its own terms. And I say that because most of the folks here, I think in New York, when Mexicans first arrived, they didn't really understand, New Yorkers didn't understand what mole was. Uh, mole was something that was not part of their, I guess you would say, their California or Tex-Mex repertoire necessarily. But when Mexicans right, first it started, wasn't in their imagination. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. so Mexicans here had to teach New Yorkers what mole was. And they came to appreciate it because then they came to appreciate, oh, Mexico is not just one thing. <laughs> you know, New Yorkers were thinking, oh, Mexico, that's like New Jersey, right? That's just like one thing. You know, or not even to say New Jersey's one thing. <laughs> you know, Guatemala, that's in Mexico, right? I mean, they, they had their idea that was maybe also popularized by the stereotype taco, the Taco Bell hard shell taco, right? Uh, and so to see things that were, sort of new for them, then they'd sort of become a little bit more experts themselves. Or New Yorkers, not all of them, but you know, those who got their taco literacy will know a little bit of the difference between, let's say, al pastor. Uh, they may even know a taco árabe because we're talking about poblano food here. Um, but you know, there's, it's so interesting because for me, it's, it's I think in my own experience, because I grew up um, as a norteño and also in Arizona, flour tortillas have always been the name of like, that's always been the tortillas. I, we always we had corn tortillas too, but it was always flour tortillas for me with manteca especially. And so coming to New York, it was pretty rough for, me for a long time because this is a corn tortilla town. Uh, it's mostly because of poblano. Yeah, right. And so that was, uh, for me, for a long time, that was the first introduction because then I had to start realizing, wait, hold on, the, the tradition of the corn tortilla is very rich because there's also a sense of indigeneity attached to it. And also with my own background and, and being mestizo as well having a flour tortilla has a significance to it too. And so I guess what I think come around in a circle of what this meant, and this, this all comes back to me is like thinking about um, what Mexican food means here and to say what it means to Mexican people. Because I, I just wrote something recently that it, it's sort of a, a move where somebody says the food, Mexican food is not good in New York City. You're also saying Mexicans in New York City are not good either. Like I can't disassociate people making some comment like that without saying it also connects to the food, but also pointing out like, no, things are happening here, but they're not happening on the scale that we understand of like the historical significance that we understand. So I would put it this way. There are three um, Michelin, I believe across the country, there are five or six Michelin Mexican restaurants and three of them are in New York City. And, and I believe none of them are in Manhattan. So that's always a good sign because the folks who are Mexicanos, you know, we live in outer boroughs. And right now we're seeing so many people, you know, doing really cool things with food. We're inspired but a lot of times by stuff going on in California. For example, I know you all have been doing the, the video for a long time, beef video, Tijuana style. That's sort of only really kind of catching on here a little bit later, but it does catch on. And a lot of the trends that are happening in California, they happen over here. 
So we'll see. I think whenever there's a trend that happens in New York and it passes on to California, maybe you guys will give us a second look. <laughs> yeah. Now, if I was to visit you, because I wish, man, I really wish I could just go over there right now. Where would you take me? We have one afternoon. Where are you taking me? I think what's really for every New Yorkers here, I got to say for anybody else, y'all come out here. I think first you got to start and go on the seven train. And this is the train that runs from Times Square all the way, well, actually a little bit further than Times Square, but around Times Square all the way to the end of Flushing, Queens. Because you got to go all the way, basically take the stretch on Queens, and you're going to find so many great, wonderful restaurants. Um, I think I'd actually probably start you off, though, at a place in Manhattan, a really cool bar that also has some delicious Mexican food called Under the Volcano. And they have mezcal, too. So I like that place. That's Chef Irwin. And he does some really beautiful stuff that's grounded in Poblano indigenous foodways. He also teaches uh, Nahuatl classes too. So he'll tell you a lot of the significance of the names of what he's making. And so he makes some really, really delicious stuff there too. And so anyway, you get on the seven train and I think you'd probably head out to Jackson Heights close to where I live. And already down the line, there are several different food trucks, but there's also several restaurants. And I mean, oh, I think some of the really cool stuff we're having right now is that the trend of mariscos is, is really becoming popular here. And so we got some um, delicious mariscos not too far. Then there's a place called Michelada House, which has these micheladas, like which are like the size of your leg. They're like pretty good. Oh, oh yeah, I'm gosh. down. I'm always down for a good michelada. <laughs> and we keep passing down. There's some great places with tacos asuadero, beef birria. I love it. I mean, it's it's been sort of, you know, for me, seeing the different kind of tacos here, how to put this, during the pandemic. When every, I mean, because this city closed down, and what I'm telling you, I would take you for the, the stroll was where the epicenter of the epicenter was when New York got hit, Elmhurst Hospital. And when when everything was closed down, I'm talking when the city shut down. I mean, it, the streets were empty. It was weird. It was scary. The only thing you, you, you could hear were sirens and ambulances. It was so sad. But there were still taqueros out, and there were still señoras sending tamales. I mean, that's how one thing I knew, like... This, this is going to keep going. We're going to keep going on. We're still here, you know, but also these are the same folks who are getting hit hard by this disease too. And so now that I walk down these streets and I remember what it was then, and I see the vibrancy. I mean, it's still cautious, but coming back, it gives me a lot of hope, you know, to know that this food has been something that's been sustaining us through all this. And that, you know, even despite some of the, the pretty crappy situations we all have been having to deal with, that sometimes having that that taco <laughs> kind of makes it feel pretty good, at least when it's that taco and maybe you have your michelada too, it makes it feel even a little bit better, at least for a while. I love it. It's, it's so true. Now, I mean, this is a big question here, so <laughs> let's see if we can condense it. But, you know, what can Mexican food teach us about American history? Well, I mean, the, the best way to put this is that the histories of both go together for a long time. And it's a history grounded in conquest. Uh, it's a history grounded in different kinds of economic dependence. There's a history of migration, of course. And so to really start going back to this, I mean, if we go back in time and start seeing when Mexican food became popular in the United States, and there's a really great book called Taco USA of my homie Gustavo Arellano. And I mean, it's kind of a cool question to ask folks is, what, what was the first Mexican food that became popular in the United States? He always asks this question. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Mm, well, I mean, I, I want to say taco, but I yeah. am wrong. What is no, it? No, it's a chili. Chili con carne, but just chili. Ah, and also how they've changed the name, chili. Sense. Yeah, so this was something that was popularized in Texas. And he goes through and gives great history of San Antonio especially. But chili con carne, abbreviated to, not even carne con chili, but chili con carne. Right? <laughs> this becomes chili. But then a really interesting history, like just following that one food and how it becomes canned. And put it in cans. Part of this was, of course, canning technology, but also the idea was that Mexican people were dirty and they wanted to find a sanitized way to have Mexican food without having to encounter any Mexicans. Of course, put it in cans, get rid of the Mexican and also make it sanitary. This was some of the uh, ideology that was behind this about more or less, we want your food, but we don't want you, but also we want to capitalize on your food and also ostensibly mass produce and transform your food into something different. And you can see that trend moving into something like Taco Bell, especially, whereas the idea of, well, there is the Taco Dorado, and then there is the Taco Bell Taco, and it is what it is. It's easy to produce. It's mass produced. It goes global. It makes a lot more money. And it was, a, I'll say, entrepreneuring, quote unquote, gringo who appropriated the food and realized in his own kind of way that there's ways I can you know, market this more effectively. So that history, at least in terms of entrepreneurship and also... Um, I guess you can say intellectual property, if you want to go into this, is one thing. But then there's other histories we can look at in terms of trade. But probably the most important one is thinking about migration 
And of course, um, the way work happens with migration and food happens through migration, but most importantly, the people. And so that turns to things about farm workers and, of course, labor rights, too. So there's there's so much that can be explored with American history and Mexican history. But I would say on both sides, uh, hemispherically, both states were founded on settler colonialism. And to really turn to indigenous foodways of both is something that unites American history, U.S. history and Mexican history, particularly the history of corn. And so to turn to indigeneity in the land, I think, was something that would give an even richer history. And then, of course, some of the aspects of enslavement from Africa, too. So I, I would say to really kind of grab the historical part in the macro picture would be is always what I try to do with the students as well, besides getting to some of the other points that we get to with uh, with food waste. Excellent. OK, well, um, I like I said, I'm, I'm now I'm hungry. I'm very <laughs> yeah. excited about what, what you're doing. I, I hope that like uh, uh, other folks listening, if you are professors, that you're taking some inspiration because we need we need taco literacy basically all over this country. <laughs> and I'd, I'd love to wrap up with our, our rapid fire questions here. So first off, actually, I'm going to I'm going to surprise you. <laughs> what was the last the last taco you ate? Oh, man. Well, you know, I've been cooking more at home lately, partly just because I was like trying to stay out. Um, I've been kind of like laying low, just kind of laying low because it's cold. And also, y'all got so much nice sunlight over there. The sun goes down here like at 430. This is sad. So anyway, I made some uh, chorizo tacos. Uh, they were pretty good. I can't complain. Uh, on corn tortillas. And so, yeah, chorizo taco on corn tortilla. Love it. I love it. And what gets your matraca? What are you celebrating? Could be big, could be small. What gets your matraca? I'm really happy right now that our semester started because uh, I've missed my students. I think this teaching has been what's been keeping me sort of grounded on a routine and keeping me going. So I'm, I'm really excited. I'm excited for this semester. Hopefully that things get better. And well, hopefully things get better for the world too. Yeah, big matraca to all the students and professors starting out right now. Mm. Uh, what goes in la basura? What are you done with? What are you canceling? Shoot. I was like, how much time we got? Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I don't know. I think probably for me, I, I would say the the thing that sort of got me down for a long time, and now I have to come to grips with it, was that with the pandemic hit, and I thought I could kind of take it a little bit easy, that the only folks who are doing really well right now have, must be sociopaths. The people who are keeping up with their work and just succeeding, getting ahead. And then I started realizing this thing is not going away anytime soon, unfortunately. So I got to get myself in order and try to learn how to live with this. And that's really getting my, it's really getting to me that we have to learn how to live with this. And uh, it's a struggle for me every day. I know it's got to be a struggle for everybody. Yeah, definitely. Hard times. <laughs> and then with, with all that, how do you stay grounded? Where do you get your calma? I know it's also from Ooh. your students, but is there anything that you do in your routine that keeps yeah. you grounded? You know, I, cooking a lot more has got me to be really, um, I don't know. I've enjoyed that. I, I, I play piano. I'm, actually, I started picking up piano during the pandemic, so I'm getting better now. I like that. I play guitar. Uh, I like to read and I like to write. So um, sort of like I was already doing the uh, socially distant stuff anyways. So y'all kind of joined me in that way. But uh, that, that part's been good. But I do miss being around like the ways it used to be. And I think about it often. But those are the things that have been keeping me going. Beautiful. Well, I really appreciate you coming to talk to us on, on Tamarindo. I want more people to know about taco literacy. I think what you're doing is important and I just want to celebrate you and, and appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. That was awesome. And I definitely want to take a taco class now. <laughs> yeah, taco literacy, sign me up. <laughs> well, to close out this episode, let's do our basuras, calmas, etc., etc. So uh, I'll go ahead and start. I will start with the basura. And the basura is to the banning of books and a little extra banning on books plus the extra stuff that folks are up to. And let me be specific. So let me tell you about this recent article that I read in LGBTQNation.com. Quote, Oklahoma Senator Rob Standridge, Republican, has introduced legislation that would allow parents to sue any public school educators who teach anything in opposition to closely held religious beliefs of students. Stanbridge has also introduced a bill that would give individual parents the power to demand the removal of any book from bookshelves, from school shelves, that they believe contain LGBTQ content. A little further in this article, it says that the bill allows parents to sue teachers 
for $10,000 per incident per individual, and the fine would be paid by the teachers from their personal resources, and the educators could not receive any assistance from individual groups. That's garbage. Absolute basura. I, I can't I can't believe it. it it's, it's so, it's heartbreaking. It's infuriating. And as someone of the, like a member of the, the, of the community, um, it's, it's especially heartbreaking because I think, especially I'm thinking about, you know, kids and teenagers in communities where they already don't have a lot of support as they're exploring issues related to their identity, not even having books to turn to and how, uh, important books can be in, in our journey of not feeling alone and finding support and, and resources. And, and it's so it's really it's really, really sad to read this. It's heartbreaking. It's incredibly heartbreaking. And it's hard to see all these book bannings happening across the nation. Sort of related to this issue of banning books, author Erika Sanchez, who wrote I'm Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter, which I know the Catamarino community loves, she tweeted, White people are banning books, including mine, all over the country because they don't want their children to learn that whiteness is a lie. Guess what, hoes? We're not going to stop. And we absolutely love that tweet. So we posted it on our website, on our Instagram, I should say. And it got so many people that uh, loved and engaged with this particular quote from Erika Sanchez because they're feeling the frustration that we are all feeling, that there's these very sensitive folks, thin-skinned folks that are banning books across the country specifically books that talk about anything that's not about white supremacy, right? They want they want to make sure that white supremacy is protected, and that's what's happening. And I want to just throw another more, a little more basura, a little slight more basura. Most people, like 99% of our Catamarino community, absolutely loved that post from Erika. But there was one particular person in our community that uh, decided, even though she was never invited to be on this podcast, decided to tell us that she will never be on our podcast because she she found that uh, post to be divisive and offensive. And I'll note that she's a, a white presenting Latina from Argentina. And I want this to be a reminder that when we talk about stuff like that, to decenter ourselves, I think she felt somehow triggered that this was about her personally. And let's think about who's really behind these hateful legislations. We know that it's sensitive white parents across the country under the guise of, quote unquote, freedom that are pressuring school districts to ban specific books and discussions on race to protect their comfort, a.k.a. white supremacy. And we will call that out anytime that we can. Yes. And I'll just add one thing. I think a lot of these folks are, are folks that, you know, often speak about wanting to protect freedom. And I think situations like like this with the book banning really show us that it's really not about freedom at all. It's just about pushing a certain narrative, certain beliefs. Um, and so it's 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 never it's never really been about freedom. So that's something that stands out for me as well in all of this. Exactly. Exactly. It, the guise of freedom. Oh, but to counter all of that anger and basura, my matraca goes right now to Girl Scout cookies. I love Girl Scout cookies. I love Girl Scout cookie season, although I only have love for one type of cookie, and that is the Thin Mint. I absolutely love Girl Scout cookies. So that's my matraca. <laughs> um, so I'm not a big cookie person, but I know what Girl Scout cookies mean to so many folks. And it, and I do happen, I do hear like Thin Mint is like the... That's the one, girl. That is the one. Above all, <laughs> above all the cookies, like people will do whatever it takes to get their Thin Mint cookies. I've had experiences with many folks who have done whatever it took to get their hands on some of these cookies. They are the best ones. They're the best ones. But uh, my karma goes to the karma that I'm getting by seeing my parents really sink into their retirement. They retired a few weeks ago. And already the very first thing that they did is they, they hopped on a plane and they went to Egypt. They spent 10 days looking at, at pyramids, at ruins, at, at just exploring and being adventurous, getting on, you know, camels, all of that. And and next week, they're on their way to Oaxaca. And later this spring, they're going to Europe. I'm just really grateful that they're enjoying their retirement, that they're um, taken care of, you know, that they, they had the opportunity to save up for retirement. And what a calma that brings me that I don't have to worry about them, at least right now. And I'm hoping that they'll be taken care of for a while. And I'm just so grateful. They, that gives me so much calma. Yeah, I think it's so beautiful. I've been getting a lot of joy and calma from seeing what you sh shared 
from your parents so far, Brenda. And it's it's really beautiful to see our parents who raised us, who took care of us, who worked so hard, be able to enjoy things in, in their in their later years and their um you know, in their golden years or whatever you call it. It's it's really beautiful to see. And, and I'm glad that you have that experience, Brenda. It makes me very happy también. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. And one thing I should add, too, is that, that what makes this moment even extra special is that, my you know, my parents who live through the loss of a child and have gone through many challenges over the course of their, I think it's 45-year relationship, it's really beautiful to see that they're, they're they've also gone to therapy and they're just like in love. So it's, it's like an extra thing to see them happy and in love and exploring the world together. Yes. Hashtag goals. Know, right? <laughs> Relationship you know, goals. Whatever road it takes, it's never too late. Right. It's never too late. Right. Yes. Ana Sheila, what are your basura, calma, matracas, etc.? Okay, um, I'll start with my basura. My basura, that was on my list of basuras as well, the, the banning of books. But I will mention someone we haven't mentioned in a while, and I, and I hope to keep him off my lips for, for a while again. But I'm going to put, you know, just like old times, um, put Trump in la, in la basura today. <laughs> so uh, Trump is encouraging his supporters to protest in the cities of Atlanta, D.C., and New York, where he... And his company and, you know, just his person are currently being um, investigated. And he said, in quote, if these radical, vicious, racist prosecutors do anything wrong or illegal, I hope we are going to have in this country the biggest protest we have ever had, is what he told a cheering crowd at um, a speech he made recently. And of course, we know that no matter what happens, if he's found guilty of anything, Trump will allege that the investigators did do something illegal or wrong, just as he did in the 2020 election. So it's just terrible to see how he's continues to use his influence and in ways that are undermining democracy and accountability. And I will add to that another basura is just environments where we people can that support the ability of people to have no accountability and thrive like we've seen him do over and over again. So that's my basura. <laughs> yeah, major basura. And, and this is the man that incited a riot on January 6th, you know, about a year ago. And so th this is just incredibly dangerous and disgusting. And we should all really be concerned. We should really be concerned about the future of our democracy and the future of our country. But Ana Sheila, what about your matraca? My matraca is going to, um, well, first of all, if y'all didn't know yet, if y'all living in under, rock, uh, under a rock, Rihanna is pregnant. And she recently announced that with an Instagram post and probably in other places as well. So I want to give her a matraca. But beyond that, I want to give a matraca to her partner, um, ASAP Rocky, who is the blessed man who has the honor of being the father of Rihanna's baby, a.k.a. her baby daddy. And um, like many folks, Rihanna is one of my biggest all-time celebrity crushes. Like, I'm not normally much of a, a fangirl of many celebrities. Um, but if I were in the same room as her, I don't know what I would do. I might just, like, <laughs> have my mouth open. I might just, like, do a little bow. <laughs> like, like... <laughs> Um, but anyways, my most, cause my most fantastical fantasy, one of my most fantastical fantasies, cause it could never happen in any reality is that I wish that I could make a baby with Rihanna. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and so since I can't, I want to, you know, give props to, to ASAP Rocky for being that person. And so to ASAP Rocky in the words of RuPaul, don't fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, so that is my matraca and my calma. My calma is going to be something I tweeted about this the other day because it's something that has been coming up with my coaching clients um, recently. And it's really about um, fear, fear of mistakes and fear of failure. And so I, I, I wrote this the other day. I said, think of mistakes and failure as feedback and insights, because it's a damn shame to the collective and, and to yourselves, really, when we let fear of making any mistakes stop us from taking risks, from trying new things. And I think most, imp most importantly, from expressing ourselves fully and freely, because I think that the greatest genius comes from the moments when we're able to fully express what we want, not thinking about what mistakes 
we might make in the process. And I think we really stifle our creativity and our full expression and, and that the greatest things come from spaces where we can try and fail. And so I just want to encourage folks, if this is something that you're feeling, um, find safe spaces where you can make mistakes. If, if like maybe a bigger audience or a bigger stage is, is too scary, find places where you can try new things, make mistakes and, and, and accept that is just feedback and insight to, to lead you to the next place. So that's a little message I want to give to our listeners that um, hopefully you all find helpful. So that is my calma. Beautiful. And that calma is so timely. If you would love to use this opportunity, Anna Sheila, to remind folks once again, what do we have coming up and where can they have this opportunity to, to practice and learn from mistakes? Yes. So we have a very fun workshop coming up on March 1st at... 6 p.m. Pacific time. Is that right, Brenda? Correct. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> and um, it's called Stepping Into Your Voice and Power. And we'll be going into what may be stopping you from using your voice, from accessing your confidence in using your voice. So we, we'll be going into that. And then on the second half of the workshop, we'll have Professor Brenda teach our whoever joins us how to be more powerful with your voice. So public speaking tips to, to make you feel more confident uh, with your message también. So anything else you want to add to that, Brenda? Yes. One correction is I'm technically not a professor because I don't have a PhD. <laughs> I'm a lecturer at a college <laughs> campus where I do teach about public speaking. But anyways, the two of us are combining forces for this great workshop and it's pay what you can. So these sorts of yes. workshops can be very expensive. We're doing it for as little as a dollar because that's the minimum contribution that's required to register. So make sure you sign up. The, the link is everywhere, including our website and, on, of course, in the notes of this episode. And we want to remind you that we love to be able to bring these amazing conversations to all of you. And if you absolutely love what you're hearing, it means so much to us when you write us a review, when you share this episode, when you tag us on social media, and, of course, when you can donate, whether it's make a contribution, I should say, when you can make a contribution of a dollar, five dollars, whatever feels possible for you, we gladly accept it. And you can go to our website, hit the support button, and there's lots of ways that you can support us, many of which are free. Yes, yes. All right. Until the next one, ponte un suéter. Hasta luego. We love you. Abrazos, besos. Bye. Tamarindo Podcast is Brenda Gonzalez and Ana Sheila Victorino. Our producers are Mitzi Hernandez and Augusto Martinez of Sonoro Media. Our theme song is by Jeff Ricards. If you want to support our work, please rate and review Tamarindo Podcast on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with a friend. Get in touch with us at tamarindopodcast.com. Cuando mi arrendador dijo que el alquiler podría ser más barato si fuéramos amigos con beneficios. Había oído hablar de acoso sexual en el lugar de trabajo, pero en mi casa. Eso es discriminación en la vivienda basada en el sexo. La gente de bienes raíces dijo que estaríamos más cómodos viviendo en un vecindario diferente con gente como nosotros. Por suerte conocíamos nuestros derechos. Es ilegal asustar a los posibles propietarios para que se alejen de ciertos vecindarios en función de raza o nacionalidad. Si usted cree que sufrió discriminación o tiene preguntas sobre sus derechos, comuníquese con Fair Housing Foundation, Fundación de Vivienda Justa, al 800-446-3247 o también en línea en fhfca.org. La vivienda justa es su derecho. Este es un anuncio de servicio público de Fair Housing Foundation y respaldado por el Departamento de Vivienda y Desarrollo Urbano HUD bajo la subvención de FIPPI FPEI 220099. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.